0: To uh, clarify the thing about the kids, I'll do that real quick. We do have three. Uh, Courtney is 24 years old. She graduated from Michigan State University. She works for Ford in Brownstown Township. She will be moving back home in May. She's been in Monroe for a year and she's moving back home to stay there until she finds out where her next rotation with Ford is. So that's temporary. Our son graduates from college from uh, Grace College in Indiana next Saturday. He doesn't know where he's gonna land. Um, he's still looking for work, and then our youngest is 19. She's a first semester junior at Grace College, and she'll graduate from there next year. Winona Lake. Yes, Winona Lake, right. So, um, we could have all three at home come July, but... Uh, <laughs> You know, that'll be nice for old times' sake because we've been by ourselves for a year. So, thank you. All right, why don't you take your Bibles and turn to Galatians chapter number 5. Galatians chapter number 5. We're going to look at verses 16 through 26. We'll get to that in just a second. Um, I want to set up this workshop a bit with some comments. In this letter to the Galatians, Paul uses the word spirit 18 times. 16 of those times make direct reference to the Holy Spirit. That means that the Spirit of God is pretty important in what Paul's talking about. Justification is used more times than the Spirit. Faith is used more times than the Spirit but of the other kind of theological words that we would think about, that we might believe to be important, they all come less than the Spirit of God. It's a very important thing. And as we read the book of Galatians, we learn four truths in the way that Paul uses the Spirit. Number one, the blessing of the Spirit comes by the hearing of faith. That's chapter 3, verses 3-5. through So the Spirit of God that Paul is talking about in Galatians cannot be received by anything that we do. It's by trusting in God and the work of Jesus Christ. Number two, the blessing of the Spirit comes to people because Jesus absorbed the curse of God against sin and sinners. That's again in chapter number three, verse number 14, where Paul says Christ became a curse for us. So the Spirit falls and is given to people, as a result of Christ's redemptive work at the cross. Three, the blessing of the Spirit produces a radical change in aspirations. And this is real important. This is, this is where this all spins. People change because of God the Spirit. Look at chapter 4, verse number 6. And because you were sons, God has sent the Spirit of His Son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father. Father. If you were at the pre-conference this morning, or this afternoon, Brian Vickers talked about Ephesians chapter number 2, where Paul lays out in ten verses really the plot of humanity and the movement of humanity. Thanks, Don, I forgot about that. I do have some notes. No blanks, though, and no pictures. They're just notes. So you can take them and do what you'd like with them. But in Ephesians chapter number 2, we see that we're dead in our trespasses and sins, We see the work of God in our hearts to choose. We see the work of Jesus Christ. We see the gift of faith and grace that changes an individual. And in verse number 10, we are told that we are His workmanship. We're created for good works in Christ Jesus. People that are given the Spirit of God have new aspirations, new desires. So different, in fact, that people that were enemies of God Now now cry out, according to Paul, Abba, Father, Father. They use it as a term of endearment. They love to talk to Him. They enjoy being with Him. In chapter 5, verse number 5, Paul says, For through the Spirit, by faith, we ourselves eagerly wait for the hope of righteousness. We're waiting for something that God wants to give us. And we didn't have that desire previously. And you can see other examples in Galatians. And then fourthly, the blessing of the Spirit stirs up external and internal opposition. Look at chapter 4, verse 29. Paul says, But just as at that time he who was born according to the flesh persecuted him who was born according to the Spirit, so also it is now. He's drawing on the two children of Abraham, Ishmael and Isaac. Isaac, the child of faith, the child of promise, persecuted, opposed by the child of the flesh, Ishmael. And he says, just like it was then, it is now. And he's drawing from the very themes. There are false teachers in Galatia, and they're opposing the gospel teachers. Paul says it's just like it was then. And when the Spirit falls and changes people and grabs hold of them, external opposition is created, but internal opposition is also created. Chapter 5, verse 17. For the desires of the flesh are against the Spirit, and the desires of the Spirit are against the flesh, for these are opposed to each other to keep you from doing the things that you want to. So God creates in salvation a man that is His, but we're saved in a context. If you think of the Pacific Ocean, if you're saved in the middle of the Pacific Ocean, that's the milieu, our context. we got to get to shore. And it's work. It's arduous. There might be tranquil days, and there are very difficult days. There's this opposition that we face. It's called the flesh. It's called the world and the devil. The Spirit of God in us is striving for us, creating this internal opposition. In my opinion, and it's mine, and I understand that, and and most of you don't know me, and an opinion is like a nose on a face. So I say it with humility, but I want to share it nonetheless. The Holy Spirit seems to be a prominent focus of Paul in the Galatians letter and an interpretive clue for summarizing the themes of chapters 5 and 6. As I read Galatians, Paul seems to think that the giving of the Holy Spirit demonstrates a new way that God intended for his people. Now, that's not rocket science. It's not incredibly profound. Probably you've all heard that before. But thinking in these terms was very helpful to me as a believer. And it took me back to Jeremiah chapter 31 and Ezekiel chapter 36 and Ezekiel chapter 37 where God says, I am going to institute a new way." Covenant, and in that new covenant, this radically new thing—it's the same in that there's going to be people that are mine, but it's new in that I'm going to give something in the in the form of the person that will make your heart different. I'm going to put my law deep within you. Jeremiah 31 says, Ezekiel says, I'm going to give you my spirit. So no longer are the impetuses and the motivations for serving God outside of us, as they were in the Mosaic Covenant, they're now in us. If the Red Wings were on tonight, and they're not, they were on last night, but if they were on tonight, you wouldn't have to tell me hey, I'll give you five bucks to watch the Red Wings playoff game against the Ducks. I don't need external motivation to watch hockey or to watch baseball. I don't. It's in here. I love sports. I have, from the time that I was little, it's part of who I am. It's in my DNA. And if you are Christ's child, in your DNA, in your code, is a longing for Him in a person, the Spirit of God who's changed you. And as Paul writes, he's, he's weaving all of this stuff in chapter 5 and in chapter 6 together with this idea that we're new people because of the new covenant because of God the Spirit. So on that basis, with that, that little bit of background, and there's a lot more that I could say, but I need to hurry. I believe chapters 5 and 6 of Galatians teach this. Freedom in Christ is freedom to pursue our original purpose for God through His Spirit. Now, again, that's not profound, but I believe it's true. And if we will apply it, then this forked path that we face in life, where I could do this or I could do this, I face this temptation or this choice for righteousness, if we will move away from the idea of a do and a don't list, if we will move away from the idea that I have to perform in order to experience blessing, and we will situate ourselves in the idea that I've already been blessed, I'm already a new person, And the motivation for doing this is love for God. Love that He's already given me for Himself. I don't have to manufacture it. I don't have to make it up. I feed it in His Word, but He's the one that gives me a longing for His Word. It will change things. I divided the two chapters up into three sections, and I'm only going to deal with one, but I'm going to mention these three. In verses 1-15 through of chapter 5, we see this truth living in glorious freedom by rejecting the old ways. So we're to pursue this original purpose, this glorious freedom, by rejecting old ways. And those old ways are legalism and license. This section will deal with, verses 16 through 26, is living in glorious freedom by following the Holy Spirit. And I'll unpack that a little bit. And then the third section is verses six or chapter 6, verses 1 through 18, where we live in glorious freedom by adopting the Lord's heart. So let's look at the text now.
1: Paul says this,
0: But I say, walk by the Spirit, and you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. For the desires of the flesh are against the Spirit. and desires. If we live by the Spirit, let us also walk by the Spirit. Let us not become conceited, provoking one another, envying one another. So in this section, Paul challenges the Galatian believers to adopt the alternative approach of following the Spirit by giving several compelling facts about it. Fact number one, a life in the Spirit is the only way to overcome the weakness of the flesh. Now understand the background in Galatians. There are people there saying, justification comes by the law, and you get sanctified by the law. You come into relationship through the law, through your works, and you grow in that relationship through works. And Paul, throughout this little epistle, says, no, that's not how it is. It is not how you come into relationship, and it's not how you build and thrive in that relationship. I point to you a better way. I'm going to read right here from my notes. In the flesh, men and women and children try to overcome human deficiency by practicing restraint or license. That is, we make rules or we cast off rules. Rules help make God's law achievable, so it's appealing to us and then we don't experience guilt. License helps cast off God's law so that we don't feel guilt. Both approaches are are dangerous because in one case, we feel acceptable to God apart from Jesus Christ, and in the other, we believe nothing matters because of Jesus Christ. Paul points to a better way, and the right way is to live life in the Spirit. In essence... Paul says that walking in the Spirit is the only way to serve God as a Christian, and he offers proof for his proposition. So remember, he says walking in the Spirit is the only way to overcome the weakness of the flesh, and now he's going to offer some proof for that. And the first is this in verse 16. Walking in the Spirit always, underline it, always quells the desires of the flesh. The first word in verse 16 is real important. But, Paul's pointing out a contrast. In verses 1 through 15, he's talked about legalism and he's talked about license again for the upteenth time in this epistle. And he says, Mm -hmm. but, but, so here's the contrast. If you will follow this Pathway of walking in the Spirit, you will not fulfill the lust of the flesh. You will experience victory. You will be different. I paraphrased it this way. Some people professing Christ as Savior submit to the bondage of the law. So they're saved from its condemnation and then they go back into it as a methodology. That's what Paul's saying. And others act as if personal holiness is unimportant. And that's not true. But I show you the right way. Walk in the Spirit. And walk, as you know, is a command. It's present tense, which means you're to be walking in the Spirit. It's not something you step into, you sign a card, I'm in, I'm on the pathway, and it's all over. This is something that you're doing all the time. You're always cognizant of the idea that you're God's child. You're always cognizant of the idea that I need the Holy Spirit and you're always talking to the Lord about that. You'd be doing this. And it, of course, is a guaranteed way and Paul speaks that. Now, with those ideas, we get to a conclusion and then we get to a question. Here's the conclusion based on verse 16. When sinning, the New Covenant believer, and that's us, chooses to believe a lie. Every time you sin or I sin, we choose to believe a lie. I'm going to talk about something to draw this to an application at the end. It's about umpiring, so I don't want to go into that too much. But as a guy that umpires, it's very easy to believe lies. I can believe that I'm the most important person on the field. I'm not. The most important person on any athletic field is the person that's unseen. And that's the Lord. Even if it's Plymouth High School playing Canton High School and there's not one single Christian involved, God is still the most important person there because it's His world. He invented physics and you can't throw a curveball without physics. He's the most important person. When we sin, we choose to believe a lie and we spurn the counsel the power and the fellowship of God the Spirit. That's the only explanation. So if you go home tonight and you rip on your wife because you don't have clean socks for tomorrow morning to come to the conference, you just lay into her, you've chosen to believe a lie. That it's okay for you to act as a domineering, lord it over, somebody else kind of person And you do not have to manifest humility and meekness and grace in servant leadership because you're all that. You believe the lie. You're not all that. And if I were to do that, I'm not all that either. You've spurned that counsel. You've not walked in the Spirit. So that's the conclusion. Because if you sin, you have not overcome the flesh and you're not walking in the Spirit. So what's the question? How do you walk in the Spirit? Now, I, I, I talk about it in terms of some ways that I think about it, being aware of the Spirit of God. But Paul's also helpful. In Ephesians chapter 5, verses 18-21, through 21, a passage you're very familiar with. I'm going to read it. This is from the ESV. And do not get drunk with wine, for that is debauchery, but be filled with the Spirit. So be controlled by Him. That's what the word filled means in the original language. If you're filled with the Spirit... You're going to address one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing and making melody to the Lord with your heart. You will give thanks always and for everything to God the Father in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, submitting to one another out of reverence for Christ. Summing up, you will love God and you will love others, which is the whole duty of man, according to Jesus. Who produces that in you? The Spirit of God. But how are we filled with him? How are we controlled by him? Colossians chapter 3. Parallel passage, but Paul frames it up differently. Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly. The word dwell has the idea of taking up residence, abiding, building a home. Let the word of God build a home in you. Where its truths, its principles, the person of Jesus Christ, who's its focal point, is just there. It's like sweating, it's like eating, it's like breathing. Let it dwell in you. What will happen? Teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom, singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs with thankfulness in your hearts to God. The filling of the Spirit produces those things. The Word of Christ dwelling in you richly produces those things. How do you get filled with the Spirit if we could talk about it that way? You let the Word of God dwell in you richly. The Spirit is the one who inspired the Word of God and the writers of Scripture. He knows this. He's God. He will employ that in your heart and life to control you and to direct you. Not as an automaton, but He's already given you desire for God. And He'll flesh that out through you. There's a second proof. The flesh, that is the unredeemed man, does not want God's will. So, this nice picture that's been painted, there's there's still issues. We still have this flesh. I'm a very proud man. Maybe you are. I'm an angry man. Maybe you are. I take great delight in things that are... Uh, base and, and profane. I was at a baseball game last weekend in Winona Lake, Indiana, my son's last baseball game. He'll never play baseball in a competitive way again that really matters. He's, like, he's a mere mortal. He throws in the 70s. And uh, his ERA at that point in time for the year was just over two but he had to pitch against Taylor University. And Taylor's guys are huge. They're monstrous. They're massive. And they hit the ball a long way. And my son Clifford gave up eight earned runs in four innings. And his earned run average popped a whole run, so he's over three. And it was his hope and my hope that this year, his senior year, would be his best ever, and maybe he'd get some conference recognition. Well, I've been checking the website for the crossroads league all week. Nothing. 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 I don't know if it's going to happen, and I'll get over it if it doesn't. But you see what I'm saying? I care about banal things. Base things. Profane. That's is that going to matter? Absolutely not. Absolutely not. And there are things like that that I like, but are also sin because I'm in the flesh. And you're just the same way. If you're a golfer and you shoot an 80, you wonder for an hour and a half on the way home from wherever you golf about that one putt if you just hit it had a 79. We're that way, guys. Verse 17 is pointing out a reality. There are desires of the flesh against the Spirit and there are desires of the Spirit against the flesh. The word for... In verse number 17, it's important. It's building on the idea of verse number 16. Remember 16, you're guaranteed as you walk in the Spirit not to fulfill the lusts of the flesh. And then we're told why that's true. Because in this already, not yet, element to our life, we're already in the kingdom. We're already God's children and salvation is completely ours. But until we're with the Lord, it's not Complete in terms of our experience. So verse 17, I've given you the Spirit, verse 16, for this is the reality in verse 17. You were still in the flesh and you're going to be fighting every day of your life. But I've given someone to fight for you with new passions and new desires that are for the Father and for the truth. So that's that internal opposition we were talking about. There's a third proof, and I need to keep rolling here. Walking in the Spirit is a completely different kind of godliness. Verse 18. But if you were led by the Spirit, so he comes back to this this person, the Spirit, you are not under the law. You're not under its condemnation. You're not under its system. You're not under its methodology. You are under the law of Christ. I am under the law of Christ. He's our leader. He's our director. He's our empowerer. He gives us truth. I have no obligation to the law. I, I don't have to keep it to earn God's favor. God's favor is shining down upon me and he is shining, or it's shining down upon you if you're in Jesus Christ. You don't have to do anything to keep it. It's there. It's, it's coming down like the sun comes down from the sky. Like Brian talked about with Gideon. God chose to show his favor upon Gideon because God chose to show his favor upon Gideon. And Gideon's goodness or badness had nothing to do with that. I'm not under the law. I have no obligation to it. So godliness now is motivated and produced by the Holy Spirit. And certainly my compliance with God's direction, but the Spirit of God is motivating that. And helping me to fulfill it. There's a second fact. A life in the Spirit acts in accord with the reality of salvation. Verses 19 through 24. So these six verses, we see this. Two representative lists. So you have the list that are the works of the flesh, and you have a list that is the fruit of the Spirit. Then you have a stern warning, then an illuminating contrast, and two eye-opening declarations. It's my belief that the lists, the works lists and the fruits list, are representative. It's not exhaustive. There's a lot of sins indicated there you know, in terms of works of flesh, but there are a whole lot of other sins too. So I believe it, it represents what was probably going on in Galatia. So they would read these things or hear them read and, okay, that's me. Then there are the contrasting fruits of the Spirit, and I think this is a representative list as well. Because there are all kinds of things that we could list, that Paul could list, that the Spirit of God produces in people. Then there's this stern warning. Look at verse number 21. I warn you, as I warned you before, that those who do such things, what things? The works of the flesh, will not inherit the kingdom of God. The word inherit is used three times in Galatians. Paul used it in chapter 3 to talk about Abraham receiving the promised child. He inherited that. It was given to him. He didn't earn it. It was given to him. Paul used it in chapter 4 to note that Hagar's son Ishmael conceived without faith did not inherit the promise of God. He was not the child of God. In the sense of the child of promise, he did not inherit. He did not receive from God. Then what's he saying in chapter number 5? If we... Are obstinate, if we are impenitent, if we refuse to turn from these works of the flesh, we demonstrate ourselves to be one who has not inherited the kingdom of God. How do we know? In Paul's logic, we don't have the Spirit of God. The Spirit of God produces a desire to repent, we still sin but he produces a longing to be right with the Father and to seek the grace that is found in Jesus Christ. So you have that warning, then you have an illuminating contrast. In the flesh, Paul uses all of these things and connects them to one verb or one idea of verb and action. Works. These are things we do. But with the good stuff that the Spirit of God produces, he uses the word, fruit. We don't produce fruit. Paul's very clear, the Spirit produces fruit. And you can tie back into John chapter number 15, where Jesus says, I am the vine and my Father is the vine dresser. Every branch in me that does not bear fruit, he takes away, but every branch that does bear fruit, he prunes that it may bear more fruit. And the passage goes on with this idea that there is a vine, and from that vine comes life, and that life produces fruit in the branches. He's picking up on that idea that Jesus talked about. We don't produce this stuff. You could go home tonight and, and you could do as Jonathan Edwards did and make all these resolutions. and I'm not saying they're bad. But you're not going to make these things happen. You're not going to make yourself a more loving person by keeping a list of 13 things. You'll be more moral. You'll be more conscientious. But if all of that is hollow, minus the Spirit of God, it's not motivated by the Lord. It's not empowered by the Lord. God produces fruit. And then there's two eye-opening declarations. He says of the fruits of the Spirit, the last part of verse number 23, against such things there is no law. So we come back to the law. There's no law against these things. There's no condemnable arrow to be pointed at these things. Why? Because they're produced by God the things that we produce, are condemnable. Even if it's a good thing. When I was 10, before I was saved, I became a Christian at 16, but when I was 10, I obeyed my parents a lot. But they were unrighteous deeds. They were filthy rags. They weren't motivated by the Spirit of God. In fact, I obeyed my parents because I wanted them to be favorable toward me. I wanted them to love me I wanted to get something, whatever the reason was, but I didn't obey my parents because I loved God. I hated God. I was a sinner. I was not yet regenerate. So Paul says of these, because they're produced by the Spirit, there's no law against them, nothing that condemned them. And then he says, verse number 24, and those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. Every time the word crucified is used in the New Testament, it refers to Christ's death at the cross, except in four cases, three of which are in Galatians. Paul says in chapter 2, verse 20, that he is crucified with Christ. And in chapter 6, verse 14, that he is crucified to the world. And here he says, the flesh is crucified. So what does he mean? In his salvation... Paul died with Jesus Christ, and as a result, he is no longer alive or a captive of the world. In Paul's thinking, Christ's death and resurrection had an incredible effect upon him, an effect he mentions in verse 24. A human being, by identifying with Jesus Christ in salvation, cuts the umbilical cord between himself and the flesh. In Christ, we become new creatures, and the flesh is now the branch that is slowly withering and dying in the John 15 kind of metaphor. It's going to be thrown away. It's no good. This is the point at which following the Spirit accords with the reality of our salvation. In Jesus Christ, the flesh has been crucified in the already part of the eternal age, but not yet part of its existence. We still battle, but the Spirit leads us into greater and greater foretastes of that coming age. The flesh has been crucified. And then there's a third fact. A life in the Spirit bears fruit if we get in line. Verse number 25, you see the word walk. Depending on your translation. If we live by the Spirit, let us also walk by the Spirit. First time I saw this in English, I assumed walk in verse 25 was the same Greek word for walk in verse 16. It's not. The word walk in verse 25 is a Greek word that has the idea of get in line. So if you think of the military... You have to get in line, and and you have to walk in step. Not too long ago, my wife and I were walking. I I can't remember where it was, but it was pretty significantly deep snow for her. She's a little shorter than I am. And uh, I decided then I'd walk in the snow and create footprints for her. This is the idea. She got in line behind me and put her feet where mine had been so she could walk without getting snow in her shoes. We're to walk with the Spirit that way. Where he leads and directs, we walk and put our feet where he would put his feet. That's the concept that Paul is getting across. And then in verse number 26, he ends in kind of a weird way, this chapter. So I'll read verse 25 again. If we live by the Spirit, let us also walk by the Spirit. Verse 26, let us not become conceited, provoking one another, envying one another. If you go back to what I said at the beginning, our freedom in Christ is a freedom to pursue our original purpose or our original design in creation, and the Spirit is the key to that. So Paul's painting this picture and the value of the Holy Spirit in our lives and and turning from the law as a means to obtain God's favor and to secure God's favor, or turning away from license, which none of this matters anyway. I'm secure. It doesn't matter. No, Paul says, we've been saved. It was God's design in the garden that his people would walk with him. They spurned him and they were jettisoned from the garden. And then God began to work over the course of time to make it possible for his people to commune with him again as his people, to love Him, cherish Him, serve Him, delight in Him. Well, what's the key to that? The Holy Spirit. Walk with Him. Get in line with Him. And then Paul says, let us not become conceited, provoking one another, envying one another. Why do that? Because that is what they knew. That's the world from which they came. Personal conceit, envy, divisions, backbiting... He's almost taking them to this idea, what would the world be like? What would your church be like if none of these things were true? Where people were not conceited. So conceited that they'd look the other way when a brother or sister came in the doors. So conceited that they'd belittle another brother and sister that has been redeemed by the same blood of Jesus or provoking one another saying things to stir anger, to stir frustration, to stir doubt, or envying somebody else's position or gifts of God. What would your church be like if none of that were true? What would it be like? It'd be like the garden. It'd be like glory. Walk in the Spirit so that you do not long for these things, so that you do not seek these things. It's always helpful for me to try and work things out in terms of how theology works. And I haven't really told you anything you didn't already know when you came. I know that. I haven't written a book. Probably never will. Um, I've never really been in the paper that I'm aware of. I've never been arrested. That's a good thing. Um, I'm not famous. I have a little office down the hall and I try and faithfully serve the Lord here. I'm not a brainiac. But I did study this and I shared what I learned. But I want to share how it worked out just the other night. Remember I talked about being an umpire. Well, I had a game in Wayne. Michigan at Anderson Field and Howe Road. I always have to battle pride as a person, but I didn't know how deeply entrenched pride was in my life. When I first started to umpire five years ago, four years ago, whatever it was, I found out I had a real thin skin. First game, I'm umpiring and there's two ladies behind me they couldn't identify a baseball if it was on the field and I pointed it to them they didn't know anything about the game but they knew I couldn't call a strike and they were John I wanted to this shows the pride I wanted to turn around and educate them in between innings about baseball now what would be the purpose for that to pat myself on the back absolutely and I learned that this thing I hated to be criticized And as a pastor, I have been. But it's so apparent and so right there on the field. And every call, half the people are upset with you. You never get anything right. But I thought I'd kind of move beyond it a little bit. And a kid swings at a pitch Tuesday night, Wednesday night. I can't remember. And one of the coaches thought it was a foul ball off the foot. If it hits the, the, the batter's foot while he's in the box, that's a foul ball. I raise my hands up, call foul, and you know we move on. I didn't say anything. I watched the ball dribble down the third baseline and then drift off to the left, and then I called foul. And this guy, Come on! What are you looking at? Where's your head, man? You guys got to get it together! The Spirit of the Lord... Didn't happen this way, quite like this, but turn away, be meek, the flesh. Put this guy in line. And I looked at him, and this, this was the first wrong move. I shook my head. Of course, I've got my helmet on, and in between innings, after the inning was over, I walked down. I should have not gone, but I walked down, and I began to talk to him and tell him how to conduct himself on the field. Mind you, I'm being hypocritical because I'm talking to him and rebuking him in front of everybody. Now, I broke this out in terms of the good, the bad, and the ugly. Because I, I got in my car that night and I had to work through this. And I believe this is the spirit. So, I'll start with the ugly. I acted in the flesh as a proud man wanting to defend my works in the eyes of others. I rejected The satisfaction of my father and the righteousness of his son. I had to go down there and talk to that guy because I did not find satisfaction in the fact that Christ is my righteousness. I needed to be right. And I brought shame and dishonor to the Lord's name. No one else knew about that that I'm aware of, but I knew about it. And who helped me work through this? God the Spirit. So his son could be glorified and I could again find satisfaction in him. I also rejected the assurance from my Father that all wrongs will be righted in his time. You know, if that man really did what was wrong that night, the Lord would take care of it, either through him getting saved or the Lord pointing it out to him. But no, I couldn't wait for that. I had to get my exercise of right. And I rejected the very code of conduct I expected from another. That's the ugly. That's where I think it's the most hideous. In particular, rejecting the righteousness that the Son has provided for me because of the Father's grace. Here's the bad. I am to the core a very, very proud man. I admit mistakes and sins, but I often do it to appear good and kind to others instead of for the glory of God and the longing for for restoring honor I stole from him. I didn't have to apologize to anybody in that car that night, but it was sweet to talk to the Lord in my van going north on Howe Road and then on Michigan Avenue heading home to Canton and tell him, I sinned against you. I robbed you of glory, and I'm thankful that your Spirit's pointing that out to me. I want to find satisfaction in the righteousness you provided for me. Here's the good. The Spirit of God residing in me as the temple of God convicted my heart of my treason. He did Galatians 5.17. I want to glorify the Lord and I believe you do too. And he'll help us even when we're vile and hideous and bring us back. The Spirit of God gave me guidance about how to pray and confess my deeds. At first when I got in the van, it was Lord, I'm sorry about that. I'm sorry how that happened. And the Lord kept me thinking and probing deeper. Why did it happen? What did you want? It became a sanctifying moment in my life. I'll never forget it. The Spirit of God took me to the cross again so that I moved on in Christ's work on my behalf rather than some form of perverse self-justification. You see, I could have cast all the blame on that guy, that would have been wrong. And I could have also said, I'll do better next time. And that would have been wrong. I should do better next time, but I shouldn't find satisfaction in that. I sinned against God. And the Spirit moved me to confess that sin. And to do it with some depth. I'm not taking credit for it. I'm just so thankful that happened. I want to close reading... A couple of verses. John chapter 14. And I will ask the Father, and he will give you another helper who will never leave you. He is the Holy Spirit who leads into all truth. The world cannot receive him because it isn't looking for him and doesn't recognize him. But you know him because he lives with you now and later will be in you. John chapter 14 again, verses 25 and 26. I am telling you these things now while I am still with you. But when the Father sends the Comforter as my representative, that is the Holy Spirit, He will teach you everything and will remind you of everything I have told you. And then chapter 15, verse 26. But I will send you the Comforter or the Helper, the Spirit of Truth, He will come to you from the Father and will testify all about me. The most beautiful thing about that moment in the van after that game was the renewed focus on Jesus Christ. I shared this same material in Haiti. Well, not quite the same. One, I didn't have an interpreter. (laughs) Or I did there, not here. Anyway, I got up in my first session and it's the absolute worst message I've ever preached in my life. It stunk, guys. It absolutely stunk. It was bad. <laughs> and I knew it was bad. and I knew it was bad at the beginning and in the middle and at the end and I wanted to crawl in a hole. But I was there for two more sessions and I couldn't go anywhere. I, I had to finish this thing. So two items happened that night, similar to this umpiring thing. First, I asked a missionary, German missionary in Haiti, "What was your impression?" He said, "Your sentences were too long." Oh, okay. Well, that's that's very simple to fix. And then the second I had to deal with on my own, pride again. I wanted to look good, and the Lord gave me a gift that night, and He made me look bad. And then what did I do when I went to my room that night? I thank the Lord for His righteousness. And I confess the fact that I do not find satisfaction in it enough. And I'm going to face this the rest of my life. The rest of my life. I faced it today. Because I'm both scared to get up in front of new groups. You're a new group. But I want to look good too. And it's a terrible, terrible combination. Frankly, I don't care in, in one sense how this came off because it doesn't matter. The Lord will do what the Lord wants to do. And I want to walk out of that door or that door, wherever it is, and be satisfied with Christ's righteousness because what you think of me and how this came across is irrelevant. The Father finds favor on me whether I do a good job, or a real good job, or a great job, or a really bad job. But that lesson in Haiti in December, and again this one this past week, what blessings just to go back to the righteousness of Jesus Christ and that God has given me a provision in His Spirit. I'm a new person. You are a new person. And God has given me somebody, a helper, to fight for my soul and to fight for my longing for Him because it's there. It's weak sometimes, but it's there. So in this forked path, of conflicting desires, know you have an advocate. There's Jesus Christ the righteous with the Father telling Him about your standing with Him and then there's the Spirit of God fighting for you that you can do those things that you want to do because He's put them in your heart to bear fruit. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, I thank You for these brothers. I thank You that They want to hear about Jesus Christ. I thank You, Father, that they want to serve You. I pray that more and more, and and may the teaching that has been done today and that will be done tomorrow, be helpful in that regard, that You would elevate Your Son so that they can extol Him in their heart so that their service for you would be more and more born out of thankfulness and gratitude and grace rather than a list of do's and don'ts that are arduous and and legalistic and minus the Spirit. And if these brothers make lists or resolutions or talk with others in accountability groups, may they never place their hope in another brother asking them a tough question. May they be thankful for a brother that cares. But remember that he's motivated to care by the Spirit of God. And any passion for service comes from the Holy Spirit. May we be more aware of that. Just make this day and tomorrow and this coming Lord's Day a real blessing for all of us where we are in... We are given the word and it dwells in us richly and it produces this control of the spirit where we love God and love others. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you, fellas. You, I think, they're dismissed. Is that correct, Don? All right.